Hi, this is Logos Legacy. Today I'm interviewing Zen Benefiel, host of the podcast One World in a New World Apocalyptic Chats and author of Stubbing My Toe on Purpose, a seminal view of consciousness, cosmology, and the congruence of science and spirituality. Zen has a number of other projects as well, ranging from life strategies to education. Hi, Zen. Good morning, Nicholas. It's a pleasure to be here. Wow. It's a pleasure to have you here as well. So what's your story? How did you get from childhood to talking about alien agendas and anal probes? <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a thumbnail sketch. So I was orphaned at birth in Indianapolis, Indiana and adopted about six weeks later by a wonderful family with the last name of Benefield, which actually means good fidelity. So, uh, and I found out 61 years later when I finally met my birth mother that both parents named, would have named me Bruce, which is my given name. Zen I picked up along the way. I'll explain that a bit. So um, my sister came home uh, a few months after my fourth birthday also adopted and at that point I was not aware of my own and so my parents thought it was time to tell me since she arrived without any precursor <laughs> events right um, and so shortly thereafter I I'd been going to Sunday school already and so I had the questions of hey you know who's my biological parents uh, do I have a father and mother in heaven and can I talk to them and so um, even with that curiosity it, it enabled me to have an experience uh, a few months later. I was uh, looking out the window from our, the landing of our stairway across the front porch. It was at night and I was waiting for dad to get back from the store. And all of a sudden I hear this voice say, hey, you. And it, it kind of startled me. It didn't frighten me. I spun around immediately and asked my mother if she could hear the voice. And she said, no, what voice? And I, you know, you can imagine the four-year-olds, no, oh, that voice says, hey, you, right? Trying to be deep. And she says, no, I didn't hear a voice. It must have been a peeping Tom. And I realized at that moment that there was more going on because I knew I heard the voice and it wasn't my own. And so I started developing that internal conversation over the next year or so and grew to trust it implicitly. Um, as we moved a few years later and then uh, the second year that we had, were living in the house, I started having, uh, I'd already had a number of out-of-body experiences that were really cool. I kind of learned to fly around the neighborhood. Well, one night I woke up and I'm in the corner of my bedroom looking down at my physical body laying in bed and I watch it, toss the covers back, get out of bed, climb out the bedroom window, walk across the neighbor's backyard and over to a 10 acre pasture that had a fence around it. I climbed the fence, started walking out into the field. Now I'm watching this from afar, right? And so I'm watching my physical body walk out into this field and start to rise up into the air. And I look up and I see this orange cigar shaped cloud that had been a mile long. And I would, I watched until I got close to the perimeter of the cloud. And then my observer became one with the participant and I'd enter the cloud. And I woke up in bed the next morning, could not wait to go back. And so these events occurred a couple of times a month over the next two years. In, uh, gosh, in 
my first year in college, I started the second quarter with, uh, I hit my knees and prayed to know what truth was and was willing to die for it if necessary. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for, right? So on 11-11-1975, which was the following Tuesday afternoon, I was listening to Journey's first album in my afternoon meditation in between classes and, and doing homework. And this voice that I'd been familiar with asked me by name if I would, was willing to die for what I believed in. And I paused for a moment, kind of shocked that I got that kind of question. And then I thought about Christ consciousness immediately, and it felt a bit empty. Didn't question why. I just went on, and my next thought was cosmic consciousness, and it felt full. So I said yes. And there was a guitar riff that sounded like a rocket ship taking off that, that accompanied that yes. And so I left my body, turned to look at it laying across my, my dorm room bed, and then turned back to look where I was in going, uh, or going and immediately engulfed by white light. And it was the most home feeling, you know, an iridescent, effervescent, really high-pitched sensation. And yet I realized that I could still think because I was thinking about the experience that I was having. And by being able to think, then I realized I wasn't dead. So that was the first kind of insight that there probably is no death, right? There might be a change of form, but no loss of consciousness. Then the impetuous teenager took over and, and I thought, wow, is there more? And I felt a movement of energy and I'm in a indigo background with points of light surrounding me and I intuitively knew that those points of light were points of consciousness whether in body or not I wasn't sure because I knew I wasn't and then the voice picked back up and said to me these are those that you're to work with in order to facilitate a new world order it will happen in your lifetime know this to be true your path will be full of trials and tribulations have faith and trust that everything you need will be there at its appointed time trust and allow. And then I felt another rush of energy and I'm back in my body taking a gulp of air. <clears throat> so for an 18 year old, that's a hell of a rite of passage, right? The other thing that I got from that is that we're all cosmic consciousness condensed in the form as that point of light that's collecting everything else. And we bounce back and forth between here and the great light in however many incarnations it takes for us to fully realize and embody that awareness which in turn would be the Christ consciousness, right? So a few years later, I, uh, uh, I actually had my parents send me to a, a psychiatrist afterwards. And after the third visit, he says, you know, you're not crazy. You've gone through a spiritual awakening. Why so young? I don't know. Because most people don't do it till their mid forties if they ever do. And I didn't understand at that time, but that's kind of the empty nester area in, in life for most people. And, uh, he said, I would advise you just to keep your mouth shut, right? Because nobody's going to understand. And I'm kind of a blabbermouth, so I didn't. Um, <laughs> anyway, a few years later, I um, uh, had the opportunity to move to Phoenix. And I was in a metaphysical bookstore looking around. And there was only a few people in the store. Nobody in this particular aisle. And a book falls off the shelf. And I walk over to look at it. And it's Ruth Montgomery's Strangers Among Us. And it's open on, on the floor with the cover up. And I pick it up and I turn it over. And the first paragraph that I read states that the most common contactee experience in the Midwest during the late 50s and early 60s was the orange cigar-shaped cloud. 
And at that point, you know, dots connected because I hadn't even thought about that, right? It was just a cool experience that I was having. And then I went, whoa, interesting. So we came to Phoenix. Um, I was married. We had one child, had uh, three more here, and then uh, went through a divorce in late on uh, our divorce was final on 11 kind of an interesting date. Um, and it freed me to go back into the, the pursuit of my path. And so from that point, I learned how to uh, negotiate, navigate various uh, environments and groups um, to learn how to work together, to get people to learn how to work together better. And I had a, a lot of opportunities from the aerospace industry. I was a production control coordinator and responsible for $7 million a month in shipments. Um, then I, I left there and went into uh, eventually uh, education. I taught high school. Uh, I ran large events, uh, anywhere from 250 people to 250,000 people in, in an evening. Uh, I was the Tempe uh, New Year's Eve block party, uh, Tocitos, uh, right before the festival. I did that for the decade of 90s. And then after I taught high school for a while, I wrote a business plan for a model community called Spe Spectrum Academy, which was based on a holistic educational process. Um, from that point, you know, I, I got into partnering, uh, which is the facilitation of stakeholder teams into a cohesive unit for uh, construction projects, multi-million dollar building road and bridge and waterway projects. So I'm kind of the guy in the middle of the room that stands in the middle of chaos and, and organizes everyone to get on the same page and facilitate a, a team building process that gets everybody at their level of peak performance. For Can the I job. cut in here? Because yeah. what you're saying is really, really interesting to me because well, I've talked to people, I've, had, I've done a couple of, I don't know about, well, two or more interviews about something called permaculture. And I've also found out about a concept called sociocracy, which I was curious about. And, but, and these are very interesting concepts about how to do, build up from the ground up new systems that are mm -hmm. more sustainable and less reliant on unaccountable organizations or governments that right. are not necessarily that, that might be collapsing or not necessarily well reliable well, right? and, and yeah. this period of time and permaculture is of course is to uh, populate your land with edible plants of various kinds right yeah and and the sociocracy is more of this collaborative engagement to learn how to work together better. And there's a, a certain amount of social currency in that with people who are able to do so, right? Um, the process that we're in now, you know, going back to the new world order, it meant to me harmony among people and planet, pure and simple, right. right? And there's an inner design that we have that's a part of our evolutionary process to get us there. That's what we're experiencing now. And it's been facilitated by this global event that's caused everybody to look inside and figure out who the hell they really are and what they're <laughs> willing to do about it. I love what you're saying. And also you've been in business 
so you've experienced this you know it's not just not to denigrate what the um things like permaculture and those involved are doing not at all i, I appreciate it but there's a sort of almost hippie-ish sort of aspect to it right whereas you're focused on whereas you've you're very much i'd say mystical uh but you're you. you're interested in practical strategic ways of getting right. things done with teamwork but with more corporate experience or organization organizational experience right. organizational right. hard and soft skills understanding i've got an mba in project management and a master of arts in organizational management so that those two things coupled with um, a certification in hypotherapy and life coach and secondary <sighs> education gives me the opportunity to have a really big view right and to be able to incorporate that in the little details and the practical mysticism that it takes in order to organize people to uh, what I'm calling now live in the in quantum entanglement in the unified field, right? We used to call it living in spirit. And that, that was the metaphysical community, right? So now we're advancing that and internalizing it into practical applications of developing systems transformation. Doesn't make the systems bad. Everything we need is already in place. It just needs minor adjustments with a little better intelligence and sensitivity to the needs of the population in order for it to work at its optimal efficiency, right? And, and to date, um, I had an interview with Jeff Michelow and, and for New Thinking Aloud, and he'd mentioned that one of his folks who's in contact with the, the folks upstairs, uh, and I don't mean uh, spiritually, I mean the extraterrestrials, that they view us as being a series of silos with male with alpha males at the head they're all in competition well this is what's in transition we've the industrial age gave us that now the technological age is giving us a place to kind of meander around and figure out better ways to do things with what we have and then this next age of enlightenment if you will that we're headed into is the age of aquarius gives us the opportunity to take that awareness and, and consciousness that built up through up until the uh, winter solstice of 2012, which is kind of the, 50, the apex of the 50 year window in between ages, and then be able to take that understanding and implement that back into the existing systems because we carry it with us. It's, <laughs> you know, we can't ignore it at that point. It's our lives. And so our lives permeate the environment that we're in, the people that we're in touch with, and we begin to develop this higher sensitivity and what's now being called sense-making. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, okay, it's, it's, just, um, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. It really is. These are all the things I'm interested in sort of packaged together. And yeah, I've been looking forward to um, interviewing someone like you, actually. Oh, cool. Um, well, you know, it's a holistic system, right? Nothing it all is. Separate. Right. right. So the like- cosmos, our bodies, the planet, you know, our bodies are just instruments we haven't learned how to tune yet. Okay, right? some people might, so to cut it, but some people might be intimidated by the word new world order because there's conspiracy theories about it. Oh, how absolutely. do we pass between the, um, well, negative, conspiracy theories and or how do we find that sort of truth and balance i'm not well, sure how to ask the question but i think i know you, you know you did, what i mean you answered it very well 
or asked it very well. And it's about the transition, recognizing that all things are just a process, right? And through our activity, you know, there, there's, uh, I've learned that there's attention, intention, and interaction. And where we focus those three is what we're going to manifest to some degree or another, right? And so it's funny, my wife, Lou, and I, we, our honeymoon, we spent in Tulum. And we were on our way to Chichen Itza, driving through the jungle. And we'd been talking about self-awareness and the indicators and how we can connect with it. And, you know, just wonderful conversations, especially to have with your wife, right? And, uh, and she's from St. Petersburg, Russia. I grew up in a little town in Indiana. Right? So there was this wonderful uh, coagulation of cultures. And as we were driving through the jungle, all of a sudden there was this clearing. There were two signs in English that were butted up against each other at 90 degree angle. One said, observe your intentions. And the other said, observe your distractions. Right? So those are the real keys in self-awareness is to understand what your intentions are. If it's to love, then be love. Right? And it has all kinds of different ways of expression right? And the other is to be aware of your distractions so that you can eliminate them. That doesn't mean that you uh, deny anything, right? Because the, the process of self-awareness is just that. It's being aware of everything and then choosing where to focus your attention, inter intention and yeah. interactions. It reminds me of uh, a card game I've been playing my family recently and it's a deck building game so you get more cards but you can also discard cards that you don't want anymore that aren't useful for what right. you're doing for your yeah, strategy great metaphor and discarding cards it's just like discarding egoic patterns that no longer serve you right, right. now that doesn't displace the ego yeah you know, i had an old friend that uh he was written up in time magazine in, in 1971 i think a march issue as being a prophet of his own time he started the waterbed industry in the united states in the 60s and he told me one time there's no ego without we go so a transformed or a, a an enlightened ego if you will for lack of a better understands that they're not alone and it's all about working with others. And that's the we go aspect of it. I have another good friend, uh, Swami Biyandananda. Um, he says, well, you know, we're in the great we set and that we're in the process of a grand upwising in the world where we're beginning to ask the right questions. I have a question. What if we could, instead of talking about the ego per se, focus on the unconscious or the subconscious and how it could be so you're talking cognitive patterns i suppose yeah but one which either harmonizes with others and itself mm -hmm. or is in separation and fragmentation with regard to itself and others and the latter is regularly called the ego, but what you're talking about as a more enlightened ego might be, because it's ultimately, it's the subconscious, right? And it's just the form the subconscious is taking. What do you think of that? We have so many patterns and programs embedded in our genetic codes through history 
that and there and we still contain that we have memories and, and memes from everything that our ancestors have experienced and part of that process is recognizing those that diminish or, or uh, decline our ability to be who we are and then learn how to recognize those because in every weakness there's a strength right there's a lot of uh, you're in business the SWOT analysis you know there's a strength weaknesses opportunities and threats well we can use that kind of situation and, and uh, process for ourselves as well it doesn't again deny anything it looks at a big picture and that those who choose to do all the self-assessments and, and things like that i just wrote an article connecting with your best self um and it, it's uh, online as well and in that i outline a bunch of the different self-assessment tools and those tools kind of give us a, a bigger or broader perspective of ourselves based on the questions and, and how honest we are in answering the questions that are in the surveys. And so in doing that, then as we develop those strengths, the weaknesses often come along with it just as a almost a sublime experience of their own development. And in time, we learn how to make those things that often cause us to feel vulnerable as being a strength. And for me, I, I had an interview a couple of years ago. I'd never thought, thought about my superpower. Nobody had ever asked me about it. And so I'd, I was asked a question and the first word that came out of my mouth without hesitation was vulnerability, right? You have to acquiesce to the greater being that you are. And that means you've got to learn how to manage your mind, right? And one of the techniques mm -hmm. I offer to do so is just putting your fingertips together, right? And just as simple as this, and taking a few deep breaths, kind of, you know, allowing your breath to, to deepen, pay attention to that, and then focus on feeling your heartbeat, your fingertips, right? Because- With your fingertips. Right, you, you feel your heartbeat in your fingertips. Oh, right. Right? Now, as you practice that, you can actually feel your whole body pulse as you get more sensitive to your body. You know, again, we often live from here up. Well, this helps to bring you back down in the body, which is where that transceivership is ignited, right? Because we send and, and receive energy all the time. And Indians call it the first brain is our gut, right? That's oh, that's we... genius. It's so simple because you're it meditating. Is. You're focusing on <clears throat> the sensation of getting more in touch with your body. Oh, that's a fantastic You're out thing. of your mind. You're not thinking in that process. You're just feeling. And so you open yourself up to the voice of being, which is within you. Is it a voiceless voice? It, <clears throat> it arrives or, or bubbles up in different ways. And some, it could be a voice, some it could be imagery, some it could be a sensation. You know, it depends on how you're built, right? What your natural design is. It's available. And that's one of the ways to get to it. You know, I think that's where prayer first came from. And, and we've just misconstrued it as to, you know, we're praying up there. Well, you know, it, it, it's not to deny what's up there, but it's all in here. 
that's the connection. It's the embodiment of that consciousness that's connected to everything. And once you're connected there, you're connected to everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. And how synchronicities begin to show up as your intention is to learn to live in quantum entanglement with the unified field, because therein is what I call your perfected form, fit, and function. Right. So we start with looking within and your technique and other techniques. Yeah, there's all kinds. Um, then we're interacting with others. And then it comes down to setting effective me, strategies and ways in which just on an interpersonal basis, you effectively interact with people. Mm -hmm. And then it comes to, you know, you don't have answers to. Yeah, that, that good point. Because we try to answer questions with what we think we know. If we like, knew everything, we wouldn't have the questions. Like an interviewer uh, making statements instead of asking questions. <laughs> so, um, well, that's the whole thing. You know, you're a great active listener, right? And that's one of the skills, one of the things that we need to learn as men and women is not to want to talk right? James Redfield expresses it in the third insight is waiting until you're prompted from within to say anything. And then when you do, if you're reflecting with another, you acknowledge what they've said by reflecting your understanding of it so that you have congruent communication. Otherwise, you, there's a disconnect, right? You need yeah. to have a, a committed and, and congruent platform from which to spring from. Listening is vital. Um, there's so many times I used to just not properly listen. I, I had to get it wrong to get it, to learn how to get it right. And I think, I don't know if everyone do that, but that certainly seems I, like. I think we all do because that's how we learn, you know, except that some take that as failure or incompleteness or some kind of self-deprecating way instead of seeing it as just stepping stones. It's a learning process. Life is a learning process. We're not perfect, right? Perfection is recognizing that it's all a process and you're engaged in it. Right. So the sense of awe in that. Hmm. So, how do we lead? That's got a lot of different answers. The first one would be to know yourself well. To be vulnerable enough to take a good, hard, honest look in the mirror and love yourself as deeply and completely as you possibly can. Because if you can't, there's no way you can for anything else. Right. So once that process is at least in process, then you begin to ask the questions of um, what can I do? What do I need to do? What needs to be done? And then, like Rilke says, you know, once you've asked the question, um, you can't answer it with what you think you know. You have to allow life to unfold that answer. And it does. 
It may not happen immediately. It may take a day, a week, a month, could take a year, could take 10 years before you finally assemble all the details necessary to fully, to use a Heinlein term, grok the answer. Right, and, and most of us are pushing or pulling energy in order to get what we want or think we need. Now, Csikszentmihalyi, Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote uh, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, explains that it's flow. It's all about flow. And, <clears throat> and when you're in that state of love or at least acknowledgement of yourself and the questions you're asking and the willingness to be vulnerable enough for those answers to show up, they will show up right in front of you as part of the flow of your life. And so then you have these things that show up in front of you to do, right? The first thing is about your being. You, you have to be fully aware of that, or at least aware that there's much greater, a much greater aspect of yourself than you're aware of yet that's connected. So when you're in that place, then these events begin to show up in your life for you to engage, which is the doing. And then after the doing, then the having emerges from there because you've given yourself fully to it. And so there's a, a reciprocation from the universe or God or whatever term is best for you to use. Perhaps if everyone does this or the more one person does it and then they lead by example and other people might emulate it. Before you know, you've got lots of people interaction acting highly effectively. Um, absolutely and so now, like we could have all these ideas sorry go ahead um go ahead I, do you think perhaps um formulating all these approaches about how we can build the new earth might be useful to a point but is it putting the cart before the horse when you use the industrial age mentality yes because that's the push or pull of energy. That's the, um, you know, alpha males at the top of the silo competing against each other. And so there's structure to that. There's form, there's a hierarchy. Well, there's a different kind of hierarchy when you begin to become aware of yourself and how it works. And those, again, it got, it, the skill set that we've developed over time puts us in particular places with abilities and capabilities of doing certain things. So as we advance along this path, those who can do rise to the surface and kind of naturally evolve into these leadership structures. And that's what's happening in the virtual space now since COVID, right? This is, um, and it was a wake up call for me as well, because I spent 40 years wondering when it was going to happen or who, you know, how it was going to begin. And then COVID hit, it was like, oh shit, here it is, right? This is the beginning of the, the apocalypse, which is the unveiling of new knowledge. It's really not new. It's been around for centuries and, and millennia with indigenous people, right? but we have ignored them. And now we're coming back full circle and having to be aware that, oh yeah, there is a natural design. We are in process of learning how to be in harmony with self, others, and nature. So these structures are already in place. It's the 
again, I'll use the term acquiescing, you know, the, the bubbling up, the, the emerging, the willingness to participate without attachment to outcome that enables and empowers those who are capable of doing so to step in and rise to their own level of ability and it's no longer the peter principle which is what we had you know back in the corporate world where you rise to the level of your own inadequacy it's just the opposite i have um a, a different tack to take uh, um because i feel like we've got the foundations down about how to interact with others and ourselves and um how do we discern the intent of extraterrestrials? Hmm. Well, first of all, it's hard to, if you're fearful, hmm. it's hard to discern anything when you're fearful because you're gonna see everything and experience everything through that lens right now if there's no if you look around and you sense and you realize that there's nothing that is in process of either harming or disturbing you or anything like that and and you can just be in that place then there's a tremendous release and, and sense of a much higher vibratory rate which can be called love right? Because it, it's an unconditional place. They have such a elevated view because of, of their own development in consciousness and awareness and understanding of universal laws and order that <clears throat> we're just beginning. And they're encouraging us to do so, but our fears get in the way right, as, as they do with everything. So from my experience, when you move into that place, there's a, a much different level of communication. Now there's a gentleman by the name of Wilbert Smith who ran Canada's UFO investigation program in the 1950s that was funded by the Ministry of Transportation. So this was a very legitimate program. Wilbert was a respected scientist and leader of his own right. And he had, uh, he wrote everything down or a lot of it because it was such leading edge information. He didn't share it though. It wasn't until two years after his death that somebody grabbed a hold of his memoirs and published the unfinished works. In those, there are a number of things that were related to him by what he called people from elsewhere. And the highlights of that is one, time to them, to them is a measurement of the change of entropy. Each of us, we start as a point of consciousness and then have this um, uh, interaction with different fields, uh, electric, tempic, and magnetic, I think were the ones that he used. Um, and then that we are, uh, what was the third one I wanted to say? I, it, it escaped my mind for a minute, but even with just those two, it'll come back. That gives us a, a, an idea. Oh, 
that we live half inside and half outside, right? Mm -hmm. So it, considering the, the population on earth, how many people are in that place of living half inside and half in and half outside. So that's a balanced place where you're acknowledging those inner realms and their interactivity with the outer. You know, I think it was a guy named Jesus that said, make the without as the within. Well, that means you have to develop the within first. Is that how you become whole as opposed to? Absolutely. I was just reading this morning, actually, the um, Gospel of Thomas. And it has a lot of interesting insights that's going to what you're saying. Oh, right. no, it's, um, I think, no, it's the Nag Hammadi scriptures. Same thing. Same term, same thing, different terms, right? The Nag Hammadi are also called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I think you're referring to what Jesus said in Thomas says, don't ye know that ye are God as I am God? which I found fascinating. And yet we're told we're sons and daughters. So what are we when we grow up, right? That doesn't diminish or exclude the fact that we have parents and grandparents and great grandparents and so on and so forth, who are further along the self-awareness chain than we are, but we are and do become aware enough that we recognize our co-creative capacity. Makes sense, huh? Yeah. Now, how do we, I'm going to flip it. How do we bring that understanding, which is apocalyptal, out in a way that is sensitive, non-threatening, and inviting to others? We speak our truth authentically while respecting the mental space of others. The intent is important because if we intend to change their minds, which is a trap I've fallen into even recently, then energetically perhaps they sense on some level, they sense that. And there's a resistance inherent to that. And then you get this fight or flight. Perhaps, maybe there's a resistance, maybe there's not. You right. know, I had a conversation on, on uh, One World and the New World recently with a neuroscience geek, Dr. Melissa Hughes. And, and we had a wonderful conversation about the brain and how it works. And that uh, when you have happy thoughts, Others can feel them just the same as when you have not happy thoughts and that your energy expands through the um, oxytocin, not ox, um, there's three different hormones that, that are released when you're, you're in a good place, right? And then you have cortisol, which tends to close you down. That's the fear, right? And when you are in the happy place and like you walk into a grocery store, it's an experiment that, that the folks can try, right? You walk into a grocery store and you look at somebody and you smile, right? You may have to take your mask down, do so, but <laughs> you smile, right? Even if you don't, and, and you can see in your eyes that you're smiling, watch what happens with others when that happens. 
You'd be amazed. So, and that's evidence, right? Now, another woman years ago taught me this technique using dowsing rods. And she and I, she was doing a workshop in a church and, and the main room was 40 foot square approximately. And she had me stand in a corner and she stood in the other corner. Uh, this was after she explained what was going to happen. So I was going to close my eyes, imagine a, a past event, really go there, then do the same with a future event, and then stand in the present moment. So the process was she would clear the rod, she'd stand in the other corner of the room, and I would go to that past place. And she'd walk towards me, and when the rods would open up, she'd stop, have me open my eyes, and we'd mark the spot. And then she did it with a future event. Did the same thing, open rods open, mark the spot. And then she picks up a rock and that is on a windowsill, puts it in my hands to be in the present moment, right? And she walks back to the corner and takes about three steps and the rods open. Now that was uh, considering the hypotenuse of a 40 foot uh, right angle, right? <clears throat> I think it's about 54 feet or something like that. So the other two places, take a guess at where they, of the past and future, where they opened up. Wild guess. I didn't quite follow what you said in my mind's eye. Um, okay. So you, you mean an angle? Rods. You know what dowsing rods are, right? I didn't know they related to... Energy. Um, future. And, okay, yeah, that's true. But I, I was aware of people doing it to try to find things. Sure. physically but like you're talking about relating to emotions and physical locations electromagnetic field oh right we so, live in a toroid oh, closer electromagnetic Wait, field the the negative events would be closer to the person because the field is contracted well past or future the, this had no oh uh, there was no yeah but maybe past and future aren't present unless are contracted Correct. So the answer to that question was six feet. Both of them, the past and the future, opened up about six feet away from me. The present opened up about 50 feet away. Now, using that little bit of information about how large your, let's call it, auric field can be, when you're in the present, how do you think that's gonna affect others around you? Remember, we're less than 1% material, we're 99% space, and that energy permeates it all. So people can feel the negative energies, but the positive energies, no, they can feel it more effectively from further away. Right. This isn't, again, I want to be clear. This is not about negative energy. This is about being in the present, in the past, or in the future, right? There's, okay. there's no judgment about the whether it's positive or negative. It's uh, just good point. where your focus is, right? So consider what that, you know, and here's a perfect example of how that works. You walk into a room and you're in, you're in a present moment. And all of a sudden, somebody across the room, your eyes connect. That's evidence. They felt you. And so they turned to look at you unconsciously. Yeah. Wow. 
right? And or I know you've had that experience, right? I think we all have, yeah. So that's the evidence. It's a direct experience. So, you know, when you're looking at the scientific method, it's, it's generally been driven by data and repeatability. Well, we've forgotten that it's the process that's repeatable too. Data is going to be different, but it's going to all have similar results of this kind of interactivity. So wait a minute. Science is based fundamentally on experience because it's inductive. So what you're saying is you can apply the scientific method yourself to direct experience and it actually be scientific and spiritual at the same time. Ding, 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 ding. And there's so many of us that if we do it en masse, then we don't need to rely on these scientific institutions with their gatekeeping and all that. That's the whole idea. All of this is free, right? This is available. Now, you have to go through whatever trials and tribulations that you need to in order you know, to understand and experience it for yourself. And until you have a direct experience of it, words are kind of going to fall short, right? And then when you have a direct experience, you're not going to be able to find the words, right? Because it's so awesome. Yeah. At first, right? Because there are no words. There's just this, wow. You know, and over time, you begin to anticipate things happening. You don't know what specifically. You just know something is going to occur that's going to be way cool, right? Whether it's meeting a person, getting an idea, having a project, take an evil leap into its next phase, um, you know, all, all kinds of things. There are litany of examples you could use is that your highest self communicating with you well let's talk about the higher self what is that is it a singularity or is it multidimensional now in my experience uh, in 1989 i was introduced to a process called multi-plane awareness and it was developed by a guy named william swigard back in the 1950s Odd that, you know, Smith had his things going on then too. Now, in that process, he created a way for uh, an experiencer to have a facilitator guide them through nine planes of consciousness and connect with your body on each of those planes, integrate with it, look out through its eyes, and then continue upward. Of course, you, you learn all kinds of things in, in, in that process. Now, the 12th plane is generally white light. And according to the guys from, or the, yeah, the guys from elsewhere, that's our, that white light is the, the edge of the realm of our physical incarnation, right? That's where the intelligence is stored while we're bouncing back and forth. But there's more beyond that. <clears throat> now, Interestingly enough, in 2010, two guys named Nepi and Close put out a, a quantum physics paper on their theory of reality that states that 
consciousness, space, and time are tethered across nine dimensions. Or nine realms, nine worlds. And I found that to be so warmly corroborative to my direct experience of that process. Now, a few years later, I, I didn't actually uh, become aware of that until 2018 when I was searching through Jeffrey Mishlove's uh, New Thinking Aloud videos to just kind of prepare for my own interview with him. And I heard an interview with uh, Howard Neppe, or Vernon Neppe, I'm sorry. And so then I did, did a little research on that. And what's interesting is that when you begin to um, consider that possibility that there's all kinds of, of ways that that higher self can begin to um, share information, right? And it's a frequency-based hierarchy that's in process. Now, there's also the capacity that we have to um, consider that opportunity and fully utilize it, or at least utilize it more. And that's the whole process of integrating the cosmic consciousness that we are into the Christ consciousness in body, right? So the uh, there's another uh, interesting side to that too. And that's that I looked for a, uh, an audio version of the multiplane awareness for years, hoping that one would appear online because it was really cool and everybody needs to have access to it. It can be freaky to some, but it, it still need access. So I created one. And I also included, uh, I've been studying a lot of, of Tom Campbell's stuff and he was the, techie for Bob Monroe that put together all the hemisync tapes and he included binaural beats at the time with them and so I thought okay I, I'm going to put those in and interestingly enough you're familiar with the solfeggio frequencies right mm. how many of those are there nine you got it think about their application in that particular model of nine planes. Oh, well, I imagine there would be each would sync up to a certain plane, but maybe each would sync up to sub portions of each plane. Either is possible. It seems, uh, at least at a cursory level, just looking at it from a, a broad view perspective, right, 30,000 foot view, that it's congruent. You know, I was thinking of asking you about the brain hemisphere sync thing and the fact there's a CIA document about it. Uh, and you mentioned it anyway. So that might be a synchronicity. Could be. Could be just I'm tuning in. You know, I, so many years of, of being vulnerable and willing to just listen and, and flow. Um, you know, some people call it channeling. I, I, it, it's just opening up to the flow of intelligent and love that is specific to the moment, right? Where those correlating 
um, communications can take place, the correlating, corroborating, confirming in some ways, and the sharing of energy. I mean, here we are thousands of miles apart on a virtual playground, and yet there was that kind of connection to where, and simply because I can see, at, at least this is my theory, and I've, I've done a lot of work with mental telepathy and, and bilocation, and it starts with being able to picture a person's face and look into their eyes. The eyes truly are the gateway to the soul, if that's what you want to call it, which is the um, amalgamation, I guess, for lack of a better, of all of those planes. Yeah, and that's all three of them, right? The eyes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be four. You know, when you get the heart in, engaged, or it could be five. If you, if you yeah. take the eyes and yeah. you take a line down to the mouth and then you go up here to the third eye, that kind of makes a cross, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's in the golden mean ratio. What does the Christ story mean to you? Well, let me put it this way. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an incident. Um, 1989, this was after I, I, I think, went through the multiplane. I was in uh, with a group of spiritual seekers. We were on a retreat at a Woods Canyon Lake in northern Arizona. And the facilitator was uh, 65 at the time. And there was, I don't know, 10 others, maybe 11 others with the group. They were all on a log that was the uh, fallen tree from the stump that he was sitting on. And I was sitting on a rock with my back to the lake. And he asked the group to act as if Jesus was in our presence and talk to him, right? And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be easy. And nobody else could do it they were it continually asked the facilitator how right they just couldn't let go and they felt a chasm for some reason and so i finally popped up and i said hey dude this is <laughs> glad to have you here let's party and of course that didn't go over too well with the uh, the old guy right i was 31 32 at the time and uh so he says, okay, I think we're done with this. I, I want to take you guys through a guided meditation. So I'd like you to just close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and we'll get started. I'm like, okay. So I close my eyes, and I take one deep breath. And all of a sudden, a light comes on above me, eyes closed. And I look up internally, and guess who? There was a ray of light from his forehead and a ray of light from his uh, chest that connected about 18 inches, two feet above me and bathed me in the same iridescent, effervescent feeling that I felt in the white light to begin with as a teenager. And he says to me, I would like to speak through you. And at that point, I became a bawling baby because I, I felt the chasm. I felt unworthy. I heard my adoptive mother's voice go, don't ever let anybody channel through you not two months prior to that, right? So I finally said, pardon the French, fuck it, I'm gonna do it. And I took a deep breath and I opened my mouth up and the first words out were, know that I'm with you always. 
And the second sentence was, this one's fear is great. And I had a what you talking about Willis moment and, I, and that precipitated a conversation between the two of us while I continued to talk to the group. To this day, I have no idea what I said to them. Uh, but when it came back, all, all their mouths were gaping. So in that sidebar, the first thing that he says to me is your fears are the same as mine were. And that was of fulfilling my divine mission, which I got my marching orders for when I was a teenager, right? So in reflection to your question, what I saw his life to be was a, an example of living in that consciousness, showing what it can achieve, and then ultimately being able to take your body with you. His ascension was like the final um, check mark, right, on the list of things that was possible that he demonstrated by doing because of his own being. Now, he never thought he was a savior, never thought he was a king of any, that was all everybody else's. And of course, when the Bible was canonized at Constantinople, um, Constantine had all the scribes put everything in that made everybody happy and, and enabled him to rule ch both church and state as one with an iron fist and through fear. Well, that permeated through the, le the rest of history as far as scripture is concerned. However, there are nuggets in there that a true seeker will find, right? So his life has kind of been misconstrued, just that, like the perception of Lucifer being some evil being. Well, if he was the angel of light and music, and if someone needed to learn how to incarnate first from the heavenly host, if you will, that were non-corporeal at the time, right? Who would have been picked to do so? And obviously it's the dirtiest, nastiest, most unfulfilling job because nobody would understand it, especially as the, as the civilization grew and especially with those who wanted to hide the truth and turn in and turn that being into some kind of, of evil construct, which it's not. And even Satan comes to the Greek word Satan. It means thinker. That's one of the references I found in the university dictionary when I first looked it up when, as a teenager, because I was concerned, you know, this whole, oh, you know, be, beware of Satan, he appears as a white light, you know, kind of shit. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go look the term up and see where it came from. And the first um, reference to it in that big collegiate dictionary, you know, the A through M and the, or A, A through L and the M through Z that were three or four five inches thick, the first reference was from the Greek Phaeton, meaning thinker. Well, they were very easily able to manipulate that into the narrative because it's our thinking that gets in the way. That's our adversary is what we think or how we think. But yet the rest of the truth was hidden so that the structure and the hierarchy and the, medi <laughs> the, the mediators right, um, it could be in place. And so you had your economic structure. What's the difference between mediation and facilitation? Mediation is when you have two people that aren't able to agree. Facilitation. An authority, do you mean? Facilitation doesn't matter. You just have two folks or groups that 
aren't able to reach an agreement and and they need some mediation they learn they need to learn how to get along right which is what uh the contrary not necessarily contra contrary but in addition to the facilitator uses those mediation skills and yet also starts with a goal for instance with me in the partnering workshops the goal is a completed project on time at or under budget with no injuries and um, safety or, or safe for the public, right? <clears throat> so there's a goal, there's specifics, there's a, uh, a plan with specifications that they have to follow. But there's all kinds of different personalities and egos involved with different hidden agendas sometimes in order to get that done. And so all of that, my job is to kind of gently bring all that to the surface. And, you know, I use the terms, you know, there's no ego without we go. So leave your ego, you know, whatever aspect of your ego doesn't know about we go at the door because this is all about the goal. It's okay. about, right? And so you organize everyone towards that goal and anything that's a disturbance or a disruption or, or an issue, which is all part of the process, mm -hmm. we, um, we do two things. We first determine a code of ethics, which is how they're going to behave towards each other. And then the most, the most important is the flushing out of all the issues that are either present or foreseen uh, or imagined and make a list of those. And then we go back through the list and we talk about each one of them, figure out whether it's a talking point, just a general you know, FYI, or whether there's an actual issue that's gonna come up and then create a plan to resolve it when it does. Because in a, a construction project, it could be two or three years, right? And there are contiguous activities that are happening the whole time. Any one of those can cause a job stoppage, which are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. So you want to minimize those going in. And that's the whole purpose of this is to look at what might happen, prepare for it in case it does, so that when and if it does, you've got a plan and a strategy to take care of it, right? So that there's no job stoppage. Right, so that's helpful information about to being effective harmonizing with each other it's one thing um, i've been it's another to stand in <laughs> let me tell you yeah i've been wondering since your the prior thing you said about i suppose lucifer like there's this idea of what opposition to creation is and a lot of uh, muddying of the water has occurred um is there really an, op an opposition to creation Well, some might um, That's a tough one put themselves answer, right? under the illusion that they are doing so, but maybe they serve as catalyst or yeah. challenges to others. I'm wondering what, insofar as, what do you think, And so far as you could say that there are those aligned with darkness, 
such as those who focused on power and e ego, you know, and but where does that stem narrative. from? That stems yes. from what does that stem from? Right. It, lack of control, not having. So they compensate for it. Those are all compensation skills right? or coping strategies. So does it emerge these tendencies for there to be elites and so forth and people to give away their power? What's really at the root of it? Say again, what's really at the root of it? Process. Well, process. Right. You know, we've learned to do those things. Those that were a little ahead of the game learned how to do it early and they were able to implement their strategies in order to manage those systems and create the command and control structures, right? Because they were able to do so. That's all part of the evolutionary process. Not a bad thing. Can't see it as that. If we do, if we start pointing fingers and we forget we got these three coming back at us. We're part of that whole process as well. And thus this whole way of looking at it where people view evil as outside of themselves is more the problem in a way, because yeah, um, well, it, it, I think I've answered my own question. I don't see things as problems. I see, see things as challenges and opportunities. Okay, well said. Right, and, and that's a different kind of mind flow or openness to mind flow instead of a mind set, right? And I was introduced to that um, concept that just totally made sense, but Dr. Pauline Crawford, who does, uh, organizes conversations around the globe. And it, it just really, you know, there's certain things, it's like when you hear something, it, this is part of the, the discernment or evidence of truth, right? It resonates. It just feels good right and sometimes it may be hard to take because you're, you're having to become aware of something in yourself that needs to shift right that doesn't diminish the sense when you first hear it because your body recognizes the vibration of the words of truth so i've got another question who or what is zendor well, that's uh, me and uh, how I found out. So we, we spoke of my adoption and, and being an orphan and, and the question of, of my identity, which I had for decades. And especially because of the kind of experiences that I had, which were <laughs> uh, completely on the fringe or, or most of them and, and things that I couldn't talk about to others because of the weirdness. And so in 1988, a friend of mine, I, I'm in the process of divorce and, and I have a guest house. I uh, rented a house with a guest house because I figured I was going to be in it soon. But I'd rented it out to a friend of mine who had uh, started a church called the uh, Church of the New Age Spiritual Revolution of America, Can of Sarah for short. It's more like a can of worms. However, he's about 10, 12 years my senior, and we were, we'd gone to a full moon meditation um, and vegetarian potluck, and we'd come back and, and um, we're sitting in, in front of the guest house, 
probably 1 32 o'clock in the morning and our conversations were always deep and then they had reached a pause and so in that pause i closed my eyes and i asked the question who am i internally and as soon as i asked the question i heard his chair move i turned to look at him locked on his eyes first words out of his mouth you are zendor talk about synchronicity same instant my second sight comes on with my eyes open and i see a starscape with a stone arched doorway and a huge and a, a huge stone arched doorway and a thick wooden, wooden door slowly opening toward me and i hear door to what is now what do you do with that right so i shared with him what i just experienced and he kind of took it in stride right because he could and then I put it on the shelf. I didn't say anything about it. And then a couple of years later, I had the opportunity to produce and host a show called One World, which was the beginning of One World and the New World. And I used, under my name, Bruce Benefiel, I used the subtitle Zendor because I was operating as a door to what is in the kinds of questions that I asked the guest. You know, how'd you get where you're at? What prompted you to do what you're doing from both inner and outer perspectives? Uh, what fears did you encounter? More importantly, how did you overcome them? How do you see that fitting in with others in, in your local um, environment, workplace, community, things of that nature? And what advice can you give for everyday living? So about, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe eight shows in, one of the guys on the set, uh, at that time, this was a public access studio. Um, so it was a full television studio, it had two, three chip cameras and a floor director and a um, bunch of people in a control room, graphics and switching uh, AB rolls and all that kind of stuff. So there was any, you know, five to seven people um, engaged. And one of the guys on the set who was a sick calls me Zen. And it just cascaded from there. So everybody started calling me Zen. They'd start, you know, we'd go to networking meetings. I'd take people with me and we'd, they'd introduce me as Zen. Now I had an issue with it to begin with because I had an issue as a teenager in the seventies with people changing their names, right? So here I was faced with the same thing. Now, if you ever judge something harshly, be careful because you're going to end up being in that place eventually. <laughs> that you just judged right that's just how it works so i'm in that place now where i'm having to oh okay well i've never you know legally changed my name but i've gone by zen for over 30 years now and it has really given me the opportunity to live up to it i'm kind of expected to and i don't always make it and yet there's always that consideration of okay just Acknowledge what is, be okay, be in center, do what's in front of you, you know, minimize the distractions, uh, anticipate the cohesion, and just live in that place. Doesn't make it easy. Uh, there's all kinds of, of details in life, you know, whether it's building a website, organizing partnering meeting, writing a book, um, as you can tell, right? <laughs> so there are, there are those challenges and that's what makes life wonderful is stepping up to meet them.
Like what if we're all doors? Now you got it. That's the ultimate truth. You're, we are all doors to our own reality. And somewhere in there, there is a reality that's harmonious. Now, harmony doesn't mean blissful, without problems or anything like that. No, just the opposite. In my world, harmony is the effective management of chaos. There's a natural order within chaos that we don't seek. We just get kind of blown away by the chaotic events and we run in our corners and hide. What do you think of Taoism? Taoism. What do you think of Taoism? Of Taoism? Um, oh, it's beautiful. You know, I, one of my uh, dear friends, his name was Kai Alex D. He was the original Wo Fat on Hawaii Five O. Had a doctorate in theology and was a rector of a Taoist sanctuary here in Tempe called Inner Truth Looking Place. And he says to me one night, uh, actually during an interview, he says, "You know, in our way, there are two things: what's desirable." And what's undesirable? Right. And desire is just how you... What makes you feel good? What doesn't make you feel good? Right. Now, let's go, let, let's take that a, a step deeper in the symbol, right? The Tao, the yin-yang, right? What else could that be? That's a two-dimensional symbol, right? We all know like with the primer and contact that there's more to the picture than just a two-dimensional drawing, right? So what if that, what if we looked at that from a three-dimensional standpoint? It's swirling round and up and down like torus or donut, like the shape of the universe. Possibly. I have a little different perspective on that. And because the, the, when you look down at it, what you're seeing is a cross-section of our DNA. Right? The two spirals, the double helix, are opposite in what appear to be the eyes in that swirl, right? Now, what happens is that the white signifies the light pulse and the dark represents the absence of it. So what pulses through our entire being, our neurochemistry, our DNA and everything? Light, right? And it causes the spin. Right. Dan Winter would have a field day with this. He'd be able to explain a lot more than me. It does give evidence of, you know, this spin that we have, uh, referencing the point that I was talking about that the people from elsewhere had, had said that we start with, right? So what creates the form around us, and that's the spin, and how organized or how, uh, not necessarily organized, how well 
engaged that spin is because you know we have no dormant dna it's all functional we're just not aware of all the functions in it but we're discovering it just like the two hemispheres of the brain the, they aren't in opposition one's analytic one's creative but there is a corpus callosum in between that is the filter that or it's the transceiver between the two that organizes them and balances them and then you have the hippocampus and, and the uh, pineal that's also connected to that now these are you know a lot more <laughs> a lot deeper um understandings and, and investigations of how we are in the biology and the science and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, science wasn't used as a word until last century. It was philosophy prior to that. Right. I'm wondering, do you think the, the Kundalini spiral and the chakras follow the same principle? It all does. As, They're all fractals. And the even the universe as above, so below, right? No, I mean, galaxies are like that. Um, so imagine your heartbeat as being that pulse that reflects the pulse of the universe and then internalizes it into the pulse through your neurocircuitry and your DNA. Right. By and design, we are meant to understand and live in that place. And we've just it's not been a resistance to it it's just hasn't been the ability to fully explore it because we've been still in the hunter-gatherer phase right where you know there are some fears and, and uh, for our safety right well those fears for our safety are all fictitious now they're they're created and uh howard bloom wrote a great book called the lucifer principle and in that he did a scientific study of the history of mankind and how small groups of people lied to the population until they believed it to be true. What's happened in the last year and a half? People stop believing it as much. Or, okay, I, I would say that people- Year and a half and a half. You know, you got yeah. people believe uh, the narrative that there is a disease and then you got another bunch that say, well, wait a minute, conscious postulates have never been proven. So there really technically is no disease, but there is something happening. Is it just a better attention or more attention given to the actual death numbers and they're being recorded and, uh, and, and shared, right? Where in the past they were like, who cares? There's a tipping point perhaps for every psyche where doubt in prior in relation to like prior beliefs seeps in where if it just doesn't match because it's such a radical shift that we're experiencing that increasingly we have to question things we, we can't help but do it because it's such uh isn't it's a frequency shift right um well and that frequency yeah. shift is also we're being affected by our movement through space you know we <clears throat> excuse me, in 2000, uh, our solar system actually moved entirely into what Jose Arguez was taught, uh, called the photon belt, which is just another area of space, but it's slightly different in vibration, right? So that slight difference is like a homeopathic remedy. <laughs> it affects us subtly, 
and yet it affects us. And what we can see from that effect is there's this upliftment, there's this nudge to be better, to be more, to be more aware, to be more connected, to seek that connection, to seek truth, to understand the discernment necessary in order to find it, and to do it in a collective way. I have two questions that I feel have a link together. So I've got like two questions to know one question sort of thing. Sure. So I'm sure you've heard of the Schumann resonance. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it's linked to the whole spiraling on every level of reality thing. And I have an impression that that is a, a, a it's got a set value uh, universally. But simultaneously, you're saying that there's a, a background frequency that is variable and that we're moving into a, that of a higher level. So what's the connection between the Schumann resonance and its ramifications on one hand and this new frequency level we're moving you. into? What is your understanding of the Schumann resonance? What is it? What is it an identifier of? the harmony or the it's between two other frequencies or at least when they do brain sync no um okay no <clears throat> excuse me what it is at any given point <clears throat> of time there are thousands of thunderstorms around the planet there are lightning strikes in those thunderstorms the Schumann resonance is the harmonic that's left from those lightning strikes. Okay, now lightning, we know, it, it looks like it's from the clouds down. It's not. It starts on the earth and goes up. So there's a discharge that's taking place. Now, does it correlate with some other frequency probably but i think we misunderstand and and i've seen that it's misuse in an attempt to give indication that we're rising into the uh, i don't know the new world or the fifth dimension or whatever you want to call it and and i just don't see that knowing the science right and it, it and it's being used as a reference and, and maybe Right, but just understanding it in the way that it's presented and that the scientist who was named Schumann, who the, the, resident, the frequency is named after, that's the explanation of how it's determined. Right, so that's a valuable point. Um, we can be a bit unnuanced sometimes. We get this new concept and we're like, oh yeah, it's great, fantastic. Right, and we try and so, fit it in everywhere. What would you offer? Oh yeah, yeah. Panacea sort of explanations. Yeah, yeah. And what would you offer as a, a deeper way of understanding what the, the discussion, the discourse about the human resonance seeks to explain? Well, I think people feel the shift, and that's an easy way to reference it or at least give it some kind of science. Right. Um, but in reality, that's still 
it's what is it 7.8 or gigahertz or something like that uh, or 7.8 hertz um, and that it it moves it fluctuates from time to time based on the the number of thunderstorms however that's a, a an average or a mean of it and it stays pretty consistent it may have you know there are some uh, and I've heard guys that are really well respected and, and know a heck of a lot of stuff use that and, and they're saying, well, we've, you know, it's now 11 point something or, or whatever. And, and it may spike to that, but I, and I could be wrong, right? I, I'm uh, far for me, far be it for me to say I, I, I'm the definitive. However, um, it appears that those are spikes and that the general frequency range is still around that 7.8 number. Now, all good intentions. It gives people a way to lift themselves up and talk about it and, and you know, kind of feel that collective vibe of, oh yeah, we're all in this same, you know, agreement space, right? And that have, doesn't, go ahead. Have you noticed a shift? in people oh you can see it in their eyes first of all um eyes are brighter you can feel it too now i can now i've been i'm very empathic i'm a cancer and i've got a bunch of other planets in cancer and, and so <laughs> i'm often an emotional sponge right i'm really hypersensitive to energy and and i'm also a drummer i like to to beat and beat on stuff, but I use it as an instrument rather than just a timekeeping piece. Um, so it, in that discernment of being able to tell when you are, because uh, you really, you're not around other, if you're around others on a consistent basis, and then you can see the difference in their lives, how they behave, what they think, how they say things, the words that they use, how they interact with others, there's a definite shift that you can notice because it's just, it's built in, right? The more you engage folks, the more you'll be aware of that. But for yourself, you'll notice it in higher levels of synchronicities. You're noticing them more. The synchronicities have always been there. You just haven't noticed them yet, right? The universe seems to speak more because you're listening better and that you're feeling a sense of more activity of a higher vibe, your mood's elevated more. That doesn't mean you still don't have the challenges to deal with, right? Um, you know, we caretake my wife's mother who's 87 and has dementia. Um, it doesn't change her situation or, or how that needs to, uh, how we need to take care of her, right? Because now she's a little kid in, a, in an adult's body that we're having to treat differently because of that in the way we interact with her and how we feed her and making sure that she's clean and all that, right? Well, for a lot of people, that would be excruciating. Right. It is for my wife because she has this image of her mother that was a completely different person. My mother's the same, my adoptive mother's the same way. She's been in a dimension care center for almost 20 years now, doesn't know me 
anymore. It hasn't for a number of years. But I unfortunately haven't been around her. She's in Indiana. I'm in, in Arizona. But so there are those kinds of things that don't change. It's how we interact with those life requirements that does change. And we don't feel the conflict. We don't feel the, the consternation in dealing with stuff or the reticence. We're more available. It's like, oh, that needs to be done. Okay, let's do it. Get it out of the way. Move on. Right? Because that frees your time up to engage life and more of the things that you're passionate about, drawn to. I love the five Ps, by the way. The, the, they're kind of an operational system for life. Patience, persistence, perseverance, passion, and purpose. There's a sixth one that we forget. Practice. So um, we've talked about the practice a fair bit. Um, I'd like to ask you about, well, the wall behind you, it says, count, we've got a book there, Council of 300 Galactic Federation. So yeah, these are like all my books. About that? Um, well, I've spent, I started writing. I, I was encouraged to write stuff in the 90s, never did. Um, in the early aughts, I started writing. It took me a decade to write my first series of books called Zendor the Barbarian. And I was trying, you know, I, I've always tried to be a little comedic and humorous about my life because it's so weird that it, it's really hard for people to get their heads around. I'm seen as a question mark or have been for a number of years because of that. I get it. Um, so that was, you know, it took me 10 years to write that. And, and in the midst of it, I wrote three or four other books that ideas that I got, things I wanted to write about that just didn't fit in that. Um, and then eventually that book became Zendor the Contrarian as a, a single volume. And then I went through and edited it again and it became Stubbing My Toe on Purpose, Toe being Theory of Everything in honor of Tom Campbell's work. And, uh, and it got me an interview with Jeffrey Mishlove, the 28 year dream come true. I had been, I, I'd hoped that uh, when I first started One World, there were two guys I wanted to emulate, Jeff Mishlove and Bill Moyers. And I hoped someday I'd be worthy of an interview with one of them. 28 years later, Jeff reached out to me through my Ufology Press website with an interview of another guy about the Greys. And he said, hey, I, I think your audience, you know, I recognized his voice before he even said his name and my heart just started, you know, and uh, I was excited because I thought, oh, here it is, right? Here's the opportunity. And so he shares this interview with me. I watch it. I write an article about it. I post it. And I send the link to him along with a PDF copy of my book. And three days later, I get an email back. Hey, would you like to come talk about it? So that was just... Um, yeah, that's 28 year wish come true, right? And, and our lives are full of that when we can pay attention to it. Now, the, the books were kind of in a, a way for me to express myself, um, often to examine myself further too, because there's a lot of catharsis that takes place in writing, right? You examine yourself in, in more depth as you're writing about yourself. And so, and some of the experiences like Council of 300 that you mentioned was, uh, a, a, about a week-long experience that I had of being on board a ship and emceeing a series of events about first contact. Now, to, that happened in February of 2001. 
if I would have put that out and talked about it, you know, I just didn't feel comfortable then, right? Because it was just too weird. And yet over the years, now they're, you know, years later, even three months after that event happened, I saw a, a channeling online that described it. So it wasn't just a figment of my imagination. Uh, then there's other books, you know, the life coaching books, the, um, I did a, I wrote a workbook on how to grow your business with LinkedIn because I was heavily involved with LinkedIn. I, I was investigating how it worked and all the things in it. So why not write a book about the process? And that came out, I think in 2014. My most recent, <clears throat> most recent two books actually, one's the compilation from my blogs from Ufology Press and the other is zero to one, making our way toward a conscious civilization, if that's possible. And zero to one basically means that we're, uh, is my reference to a zero to type one civilization on the Kardashev scale, right? Because we're on that trajectory. We, we just need a little nudging here and there, and I, I think we're going to do fine with it. Then there are those type two and type three civilization that we can begin to open ourselves to. Because until we're unified as a planet, nobody's going to want to have anything to do with this because we're still warring amongst each other. How would a, or why would, you know, beings from other places that have gotten over themselves and learned how to get along want to deal with people who haven't? I mean, unless, of course, They're they um, aren't the friendly ones. You know, I have had a lifetime of experiences and I've met all kinds of races. And the only one that felt even slightly intimidating, actually was really intimidating, was the Draconians. Their vibration is so high that I had a fight or flight response to it when this one particular one showed up. When I recognized that and I took a breath and I let go, because there was no fear. I wasn't in any kind of danger whatsoever. So when I let go of that, I recognized the fight or flight and when I got hit with the energy, <clears throat> and I let go. I took a deep breath, I opened up, and man, what a sense of love. It was, there was no emotion, right? It was beyond emotion. It's just a, this really high frequency. Now, in my entire experience, I've never had a negative one. I've had challenging ones, but that was because of me. You know, I woke up, <laughs> 1991, I woke up on board uh, on a steel gurney with electrodes lighting my sphincter. And these three grays were plastered up against the wall next to the device that the electrodes were connected to. And I'm laughing. I'm like, come on, what are you doing? You know, and I start pulling these electrodes out. And how did uh, they explain that? Well, I'll get to that. All right. <laughs> so I'm pulling these electrodes out and I'm laughing because I'm semi embarrassed. And I'm like, you know, I, I'm not shy by any means, but I was like, come on, guys, what the heck are you doing? And, and I get to the last one, I pull it out, feels like I pulled a pubic hair, a little bit of a sting. Right. And I open my eyes up, my back in bed. And my first thought is, oh, shit, I had a golden opportunity to talk to them. I just blew it. So I closed my eyes, and I, with all the intention I could muster, I wanted to go back. Well, I didn't know how. 
obviously, but the intention got me into this empty space and this male figure in, in this dark white shimmering cloak says to me, next time, just relax. We're just trying to tune you up so we can communicate more easily. Now, what the heck did that mean? Well, it just so happened that the week before I'd been studying anatomy with my girlfriend who was going to be a massage therapist and she was taking an anatomy class and she had to study the nervous system. Just so happens that the perineum or perineal nerve ends in the sphincter in the genitals and it extends from the tip of the spine. They're just so, trying to help you. You didn't need to be anally attentive about it. Right, right. But but we're so, you know, well, we can't talk about those areas, right? Um, let alone, you know, talk about sex. So if technology existed to adjust our vibratory system, which is the central nervous system, how might they do it? The sphincter, the anus, is the only place on the body that has that connective tissue, so to speak. Right? I've got a question. So something came up to me in my mind yes. here. I know I'm kind of in, but like, so when it comes to free will and consent, are you sometimes not aware of it happening in your lower self? But does so your higher self sometimes consent? There's agreements that have already been made before you incarnated to go through the things that you go through, whether you're prepared for them or not. Now, of course, the best path is to acknowledge the synchronicities along the way so that you're prepared. But we don't often pick those up because we're, you know, uh, our eyes aren't opened yet, so to speak. Our heart's not open. We're looking elsewhere looking outside of ourselves instead of looking within and adjusting accordingly. So depending on whether you're ready or not, here we go, right? And so you have the varied responses and reflections of people who've had those kinds of experiences, some from a fear-based lens because they weren't prepared, others from the perspective I have because I was prepared. I was looking for it. Right? I was kind of anticipating at some point, based on my early understanding of my engagements with whoever it was, it was in that orange cigar seat cloud that felt like family when I was a kid. And to be honest with you, I've never, I've had more family or familiar feelings with other races than I have with humans. That actually kind of makes sense because there's so much separation down here. Um, yeah. And it's a sad thing and it is what it is. Now, what can we do about that? Do we want to have a better experience? And if so, what are we each individually willing to do in order to have it? And perhaps we could start with them. Well, that's where it all starts. You know, you, we get stuck out here for a long time because that's how we're built, right? That's how we're trained from 
childhood. Occasionally, there's those kids like me that have an extra layer or two of sensitivity that others don't understand. You know, my parents told me, it's funny. So you got EQ, IQ, and SQ, right? Intelligent quotient, emotional quotient, and spiritual quotient, right? And, and you'll find that most everything, it, it, there's a trifecta, there's a tri, uh, triune uh, model in place, even with um, initiating creation, right? And that brings up a point I'll, I'll come back to. So when you're in that, um, there's an opportunity that presents itself. I got lost in a, in a future thought with uh, um, the creation thing. Was there another question in there? What do you think of the mental image I had in my mind's eye of um, it was like a triangle spinning round in a circle kind of forwards. Um, well, that reminds me of a star tetrahedron where it's basically the representation of the masculine and feminine inner energy. We also refer to that as, as above, so below, right? We have father sky and mother earth. Um, and within each of us, we have a masculine and feminine aspect, right? And those two spin either in harmony or not, right? And, and when they spin in harmony, then you've got a high EQ, right? And the intelligence, you know, the my parents, I really disliked how long they waited to tell me. In my 30s, they told me that my IQ test in, in second grade, I was off the charts. Well. They didn't know what to do with me at that point. They, they were afraid to let me know how smart I tested for fear that it would go to my head and that I'd, hmm. you know, become this pompous asshole. If I'd have known, maybe I wouldn't take some of the trips that I did. Um, I probably would have anyway, right? Because they were there to do and it really didn't matter. Um, it also, with the, you know, with those three, now consider this, uh, speaking of the three, I had a question, and this goes back to another one of William Swigard's techniques called multi-level awareness. And it was designed to uh, communicate with your guides, to work with your chakras, to look at the Akashic records and things like that. And uh, I got, I was getting ready to go into one of these sessions. I, I'd done my you know, deep breathing and vision, envisioned my light body. And, and then my guide Zephyr, who I met also in college, um, who was um, a priest king for civilization here in Arizona, or what was to become Arizona over 20,000 years ago, right before the earth tumbled and, and this area became uh, seabed for a while. Well, he shows up and kind of waves to me and says, come. And so I'm out of body and we're traveling through the stars for a little bit and then they disappear. And I'm asking where we're going. He says, just what you'll see. And we're talking, I hadn't seen him for a number of years. So we're kind of going over my history and my progress to date. And then uh, all of a sudden we arrive at this just gorgeous, it's a three sun system with about a dozen planets on a planar orbit. 
and the suns were at least 20 times as big as the planets. And they were all three the same size, kind of a, a white gold tinge with rainbow sparkle looking. And I felt like um, Jodie Foster, as Ellie did in Contact, when she first went through the wormhole and saw that scene, she was just in awe, right? That's how I felt. And as I was looking, the three, that's what it felt like, took one voice and said to me, we are not only your forefathers, we are also the forefathers of your solar system. And so I want to start asking questions and Zephyr says, nope, that's it. You got all you need. You'll figure it out. And I'm like, oh, shit. Right. So back we came. <laughs> and what was interesting is that the facilitator sitting next to me was keeping track of the time. It took us eight minutes to get there and eight minutes to get back. So I, I thought, okay, what kind of speed reference could I find? What, what were we traveling at? Because it was definitely faster than light. And so I was looking around for things and, and the only place that I found a reference was in the Urantia book for a thing I think called the Solitary Messenger and, and they were stated to be able to travel at 800 and uh, the speed of thought, right? Which was 841 trillion miles per second. So I came back wondering, okay, how's it all fit? And the most logical thing was the proton, electron, and neutron. And the space in between them is where the consciousness exists that determines their form, fit, and function. Go on. The Trinity is in every atom. Now, the only thing, so there was in my quest for understanding, right? I realized, okay, there's one that doesn't fit the model, and that's hydrogen. What does it? Well, guess what hydrogen does? Two things, just right off the, the top. It's the main. Uh, component of the sun and internally it's the bonding agent of our DNA and it's water it's the bonding agent of our DNA helix is hydrogen so stars are like and it's the most prevalent element in the universe Okay, now bringing it back into the proton, electron, neutron aspect and, uh, you know, a scriptural reference of the, <laughs> the number of the beast, right? It is said to be a number of knowledge and wisdom. Let he who hath understanding interpret the number. It is 600, three score and six, right? So where does that come in on a biological level, first of all? Six protons, six neutrons, six electrons make what? I, I, I can't remember the chemistry. Carbon atom. Okay. The Truly, Columbus life. The number of man. 
what are we? We're carbon-based beings. Okay, so that limit that completely eliminates the separation. Right? You start from that one fact, that one simple fact that we are all the same. We are all carbon-based beings and we all have that point of light inside of us. So where can we go from there? Well, I imagine there's different forms that you can get in terms of different kinds of beings that relate to the numbers and relate to the speed of thought as well and relate to the stars and the trinary system um, of everything being in three and six is double three. And we have two strands in our DNA swirling around, although we may get more strands in our DNA. Maybe not, maybe not, okay. Why would we? We're built this way, okay? Nothing, uh, yeah, you're right. Our, I mean, phys yeah. our physicality, nothing in the physical world changes. Nothing. What changes is how the energy flows through it. So the unlocked potential of our bodies through everything right do you ever notice how you have a, a whether it's a prayer or a desire or, or something for a physical article <clears throat> let's say and it eventually shows up outside of your intentional activity to get that object, right? Now that doesn't mean that that doesn't work because that's how we're taught. We, we do things, we step-by-step, step, you get the vision, the goal in mind, start with the end in mind, back it up, figure out the steps to get there, and then work out a strategy to do all the stuff necessary for the process, right? That's the manifestation process. Well, that also takes place in the thoughtmosphere and how the universe line things up. John English calls it the momentum tunnel. It's like, you know, once you commit to something, the universe supports you in that, but you have to commit with your life, right? There, there's no screaminess, squeamishness about your commitment. What about attachment? Um, what about attachment? What do you mean by attachment? Um, I wrote, I read a book by Deepak Chopra about it was a short one about like I can't remember the name of it but um it was that like the laws of success or something and one of the things he said was that if you're attached to something you want to manifest that blocks it or yep. interferes with it whereas if you let right, go because, because you're either pushing or pulling that's your attachment energetically Right? You don't want something, you push it away, but your focus is still on that something. The mind doesn't hear don't. It only focuses on the noun. Right? It doesn't focus attention on is the... Yeah, yeah, yes, attention. Right. But if you're attached... Yeah, okay. Right. So did you figure out the star system and how did you figure it out? 
Uh, what do you mean by the star system? The star system that you went and visited, the trinary star system. I had an inkling for it. Uh, it's known as Centaurus. It's in the constellation of Virgo, which is beyond Polaris. Huh. Is there any known um, extraterrestrial species that aligns with that? You have no idea. Now, I even think that was just small scale in order for me to get comfortable with it. Because the first inkling was that I'd gone to you know, I guess what the Urantia book calls uh, home, right? Um, the center of creation. Are you talking about Sagittarius or beyond that? No, it's beyond, you know, uh, I mean, we're so far out on the edge of the uh, arm of the Milky Way, right? And, and that's just one super universe. You know, there's, what, six others or more? Um, so in, uh, in that speed, you know, 841 tri trillion miles per second, eight minutes, that's a long way. And I, I haven't, at one point I calculated it out, but I, I can't remember. It's still astronomical in the figures, right? So I'm still not sure, but it felt like, okay, that's the, the core of creation, those three elements that then become one um, in the, the I am teachings, they call it the threefold flame that's within the heart. So there's these three energies that combine to um, manifest or precipitate our bodies, right? In the process. I mean, look at how, as we grow, Right. We, th we look at it from infant to adulthood as being a, a process of just our biological growth, right? We see it as a, a biological process. Well, what if it was more than that, that we were actually assembling elements from around us and bringing, in, and bringing them in as part of that physical growth that we may not be aware of? Right, these are sort of alchemy. Alchemy is making something, you know, changing from one thing from to another form, like lead into gold. No, it, it, it could be loosely termed as out al as alchemy, I suppose. But it's the process of amalgamation of of often etheric or unseen material as part of the incorporation of the physical body. Yeah, our cells develop, they divide, they split, and, and that whole physicality side of it is real. I think there's more, or potentially more, because of what I understand and have experienced of greater realities and how I've at least uh, surmised that, that how they operate. I, I, I'm still in process of understanding this. You know, this is 40 years of work that I've put my uh, being into while doing professional things in the world and raising a family. I've got four kids, nine grandkids, and, and soon to be five great-grandkids. That was from my first marriage. I got remarried, I divorced in 88, got remarried in, in 2017 on the base of Bell Rock on the fall equinox. Just wonderful. And That's a full life you're living. And what's your secret? Attitude. 
Right. Attitude determines your altitude. I like that. Simple. Everything is really simple. We make things so freaking complex. So no wonder we're lost. So now maybe this apocalyptic time is learning how to make stuff simple again. Back to the core beings, the, you know, uh, corporations call them your core competencies, right? Um, back to those intrinsic, deeply embedded moral and ethical codes. Right. Because there's all this talk about how we need to follow these moral codes that are <clears throat> agreed upon externally. But what about agreed upon spiritual, on a spiritual level, codes that we could tap into? It's, it's the same. It's just a different way of looking at it, right? It comes down to what spiritual mean? Connectedness. The connectedness of all things right that's what spirituality leads us to so if that's true then that'll be reflected in science as well and it is the gut has at least as many neural sensors as the heart and the brain and according to indigenous philosophy that's the first place that we connect with the world around us is vibrationally we feel and sense so when we can get to that place where we can just relax, take it easy, you know, don't get so uptight. Um, and yet everything around us is asking us to be uptight, to be afraid of our neighbors, to be afraid of our friends, especially in this last year and a half, right? Even governments now are, are going to the extreme of, oh, you're not going to comply. Well, we're, you know, it's just horrific. And yet, therein is the opportunity to ascend from it because it's necessary we don't know how we're asking questions all we want to do is be able to get along love each other love ourselves you know we all come into this world with two things we want to love and be loved right why not well do that so why not? How do you do that? That's what we've been talking about. You know, there's yeah. all kinds of different perspectives and ways. And, you know, one of the examples, I, I use a, a, a number two pencil, right? And I paint each panel on the pencil a different color. Hold it in a group of people, right? Put it in the center of them. Each one of them see the pencil as a different color. It's still a pencil. Everyone's a different door, right? Doesn't matter how you get there. As long as you're asking the, the questions and your attention and intention and interaction are in alignment with that, nobody else matters. This is your path. You do what you need to do. You'll know by how you feel whether it's right or not. Pay attention to your feelings. Now we're taught, especially as men, you know, oh man, don't ever express your feelings or show your weakness because you're going to get so, you know, right? That's such a crock of shit. I'm sorry. 
vulnerability and the ability to feel is the most important aspect of being. So, yeah. why, you know, this is what, you know, I had the, uh, the article I mentioned earlier, you know, connecting with your best self. Um, I had a response from a, a woman I really respect of, um, okay, but all this stuff, you know, kind of leads to ego and, and then we're supposed to push our weaknesses aside and deny those. And, and the very, that's the intuitive side and things like that, right? And that uh, we're taught that those are, are not good. And, and so we don't engage those. And, and now um, this older generation is a bit frightened of them because they've never been developed and here they are showing up. And now, you know, there's this scary situation because it's unknown. And yet, the core of what's happening is the ability to look and grow, look at ourselves and grow. And even with, um, you know, the notion, that, and I included later on in that article, um, along with the, the links to the uh, self-assessment strategies, and, and I included astrology and numerology charts. Okay, now, traditionally, those have been kind of taboo, right? Or those who do look into them, just look at your daily horoscopes and, and you know, they consider the predictive side of it. Yeah, that's just one small sliver. There was a guy back in the 80s. Uh, I read an article. He was the um, uh, ex-president of Valley National Bank. He and his brother had founded the bank in the 1930s when they first came to Arizona and they were responsible for bringing most of the business to Arizona. Okay. There was an article in the new times, which is a alternative rag here with him. And he was quoted as saying, I'm just here to talk to people. He was 92 at the time and still had his office in the top of the Valley national bank building, downtown Phoenix. So I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to go talk to him. Well, I had just written a paper for an international cultural center that I submitted for my degree program when I was uh, getting my bachelor's degree. Failed. I got a D on it because I didn't have the financials. There weren't any other kinds of um, facilities to compare it to at that time. So I was kind of bereft of those numbers. Anyway, I took it to him and because uh, I want to talk to him. I want to get his input. And we talked about it. He said, I love the plan. Now you just got to go find the pieces. So that was um, maybe a half hour discussion of all of those things, right? As I was explaining it. And then for the next 45 minutes, almost an hour, he starts telling me about how his wife's psychic abilities, tarot readings, astrological readings, numerological readings, helped him and his brother build the business. Well, if we are thinking about new ways of, well, I know always, effective ways of transitioning into whatever you call this, what well, new earth or what have you, I guess, well, that's a good start. Truly is. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that it really depends on just your willingness to be vulnerable and ask the right questions and then step into the answers. Well, you know, I think that sums up 
everything we've been talking about. <laughs> and, um, you yeah, know, awesome. like, it has been. And um, honestly, uh, I think there's a lot we haven't talked about yet. Oh, I'm sure there are vines we haven't talked about yet. We just had a very cursory level. All right, so um, I look forward to the next interview then. Sweet. All right, and um, anyway, uh, viewer or listener, uh, I hope you had a good time. I mean, if you got to this point, I imagine you have. So um, without further ado, have a great day or great evening, and uh, bye for now. <laughs>